Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host Kurt, but that's because we have a very special guest to interview, Lost in Space colorization artist Mr. Guy Foster. Guy is well known to the online Lost in Space fan community for his beautiful colorizations of black and white images from the first season of the series. Guy discovered Facebook in 2013 and started colorizing experiments of standard definition screen grabs. Later, after the 2015 release of the high-def Blu-ray set, he challenged himself to produce images that would hold up against photos from the later seasons originally shot in color. With time, experience, and some cutting-edge digital tools, in this host's humble opinion, he's managed to get as close as possible to that lofty goal. As the popularity of colorizing grew online, Guy decided in 2017 to create his own Lost in Space Facebook group, the Pre-Planus Polycolor Collective, dedicated to showcasing his works. The group has expanded to feature other artists' colorized images, as well as some delightfully unique compositions, such as Lost in Space-themed graphic novels and takeoff pieces based on well-known works of art, like Edward Munch's painting The Scream, featuring Jonathan Harris doing what Dr. Smith does best. Fans of the show regard Guy's Facebook group as the go-to site for a vast collection of beautiful Lost in Space-inspired artwork by a remarkable stable of talented digital artisans. First, before we speak with him, a little background on Mr. Foster. Guy was born in New Zealand, but adopted as a baby by British and South African parents. As a child, he lived in Hong Kong for a time where his father was stationed as a senior officer in the British Royal Navy. At the age of two, he returned to the UK with his family and they later immigrated to Perth, Western Australia, which is a beautiful city of two million and the most isolated capital on the planet. The state of Western Australia is a vast territory, about the size of Texas and Alaska combined. Growing up with many diverse interests, Guy had a particularly strong love of all forms of science fiction, including, of course, Lost in Space. Later, he earned a degree in cartography, working in that field for approximately 30 years. Despite the strong technical aspects of Guy's chosen field, he always had an unfulfilled creative streak, which in part led him to his passion for colorization. These days, he's a semi-retired stay-at-home dad of one, plus a noisy Siamese cat. We're going to speak with him today about his love for Lost in Space, his stunning artworks and techniques, as well as a little background on what makes Australia such fertile ground for a Lost in Space fandom. Now sit back and enjoy this special interview from Down Under with Mr. Guy Foster. Mr. Guy Foster, sir, welcome to Alpha Control. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast celebrating Irwin Allen's original Lost in Space. 
Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Lane. Now, you're well known in the fan community for your great Facebook group, the Preplanus Polycolor Collective, and your remarkably realistic and stunning colorizations that you post there. I want to get into the details on your colorizations and the techniques that you use to produce those. But I want to start out at the beginning because you have a very interesting background. What can you tell us about your early life, uh, where you were born and raised, and how exactly did you wind up living in Perth, Australia? Okay. Uh, well, firstly, um, thank you for the flattering comments uh, about my work. Let's see now. I was born in Auckland, New Zealand. Mm. And... Uh, I was adopted from that country because uh, my, my parents who adopted me, they um, they were told that they couldn't have children. They'd been trying for about five years. My father was a lieutenant commander in the British Royal Navy, stationed in Hong Kong at the time, and this was back in the 60s. And uh, yeah, so they'd been married for about five years and been unsuccessful in having kids of their own, wanted to adopt, but um, it must have been difficult to adopt when moving about so much. Mm. So I think they were registered with various adoption agencies in uh, other countries. And so I, I just became available. Mm. They adopted me from New Zealand uh, at a few days old. And I had a little holiday there for a couple of weeks and brought me back to Hong Kong where I lived for nine months. Oh. And um, I didn't pick up the language, though. <laughs> <laughs> and then they went back to the UK for about 12 months. And in that time, my mum became pregnant with my brother. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> well... Yeah, um, the doctors were wrong. Yeah, <laughs> these things happen. And so my my father had just completed twenty years um, and retired from the navy, and they made the decision to um, emigrate to Australia, as many British people did at the time. And he'd already seen uh, some of the other cities like Sydney, and um, he wanted somewhere which was a bit drier because Sydney tends to rain a lot. So uh, he, they decided to emigrate to Perth, which is on the west coast. And it's got much more Mediterranean climate. It's a bit like Los Angeles, from what I've heard. Oh, we see. Well, that's interesting. Well, tell us a little bit more about Perth. Well, it's the most isolated capital city on the planet. The nearest city to Perth is Adelaide, which is about 2,100 kilometers or roughly 1,300 miles away as the crow flies. It's closer to Singapore and Jakarta, uh, the capital of Indonesia, uh, than it is to Canberra, our national capital. Wow. Let's see... Um, Perth is the fourth most populous city in Australia, um, about 2 million people. And Perth was named after Perth in Scotland. It was a small city there. And we have a hot summer and cool winter, Mediterranean climate, as I mentioned before. Interesting. Perth is also the sunniest city in Australia, with 300 out of 365 days being sunny. Oh, that's nice. And um, there's an island 20 kilometres off uh, Fremantle, which is a southern part of Perth, called Rotnest Island. That is a home to small ferry... Um, critters called quokkas. They're like a tiny fat kangaroo the size of a cat. And a few years back, Lonely Planet voted the quokka to be the happiest animal on the planet. <laughs> and so quokka selfies were born mm. and went viral. And you might have seen some of them. Uh, recently, Roger Federer was on the island. He was playing in Australia and he got a quokka selfie and that made the papers. Um, and yeah, that, I, th I think I did that, see that, actually. <laughs> That's pretty yeah. cool. They're neat. Uh, it was originally named Rotnest, meaning rat's nest in Dutch, because the early Dutch explorers thought the quokkas who inhabited the island were rats, maybe from a distance, but, you know, they're about the size of a cat, and they don't look anything like a rat, really. Uh, but I suppose it's the nearest equivalent. Yeah, there must have some pretty big rats in Holland. Let's see, we've got the world's largest inner-city park called King's Park, which is 400 hectares or 990 acres. 
mm-hmm. as big as the New York Central Park, and it's home to the highest per capita of self-made millionaires, apparently. Um, I'm not one of them. Mm. <laughs> Famous people from Perth, Heath Ledger, Bon Scott, the original frontman for ACDC, uh, Hugh Jackman studied acting over here. Uh, now about Western Australia, it's the second largest state in the world after Russia's Sarka Republic. It's got 12,500 miles of coastline, which means you're never going to be stepping on anyone's towel at the beach, I suppose. Mm. In 1979, when some space debris from NASA's Skylab crashed into the town of Esperance, the council charged the space agency $400 for littering. Um, and NASA, they didn't pay up. Oh. It's very cheap of them. That's very cheap of them. Wow. Yeah. Don't litter on the t- little town in uh, Western Australia, NASA. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Here's just one last thing, <laughs> bit of trivia. Um, Western Australia is also known as the nanny state over here due to its overregulated nature. As an example, I, I recently discovered that it's illegal to challenge someone to a duel under our criminal code. I had no idea about any of this. There have been a- actually been nine charges resulting in a conviction over the past 10 years. Oh, wow. As you might have heard, we've got exceptionally tight gun laws over here, so maybe the dual challenges were with throwing rocks at each other or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, that is bizarre. That is bizarre. And congratulations. You know far more about your hometown and your region than I know about mine, so my hat's off to you. Although, Well, apart from that last thing about the, the, um, the duels, I didn't know that until recently. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that tutorial on Perth and Western Australia. It's fascinating. Tell me about sure. your personal experience with the show Lost in Space, and uh, maybe you could mention a little bit about what the show means to you. Okay, well, I first saw the first season around 1970 so I was watching reruns by the time I became aware of it I was a bit too little to really remember any TV and it was uh, going through its run when I saw it 1970 I was about six I think um, it was at times terrifying but it was really addictive I just loved it and uh, I had a lot of um, schoolmates watching watching it as well it's a very special show with such memorable characters they really stand out Music score by John Williams was a huge standout as well. It contributed tremendously to my enjoyment of the show too. I enjoyed all of the Owen Allen shows. And for nearly 20 years, reruns of Lost in Space, second and third seasons were aired. And uh, in Australia, the first season only ran for a short time and then was not aired again until 1988. Mm. So there was this large gap. So people became very familiar with the second and third season. I think they'd forgotten about the the earliest, more um, dramatic stuff. Um, when they aired it in 1988, it was only aired in Perth, but not in other Australian cities. Don't ask me how that happened, but um, at the time I recorded, all, I was recording all of them onto VHS and passed on copies to grateful individuals. And um, I think the, the president of the South Australian Lost in Space Club contacted me from Adelaide, and because he'd heard through the grapevine that I had it and I was recording it, so I, I just sent him the whole first season, and um, I, he was so grateful. Mm. I'm sure that club had a boost in membership around that time. That's great. Well, when you were growing up, were you an artistic kid or creative? Well, as as a kid, I had a big imagination, and I still do. And um, I was always daydreaming in school, in a primary uh, school system. I was constantly day- daydreaming. And if, you, if I read my whole reports, guys, daydreaming. But you know, I did pretty well academically. But I was dead daydreaming, I think, because I was a bit bored. Mm. I just grew up with a lot of diverse interests. So um, I had those diverse interests because I had uh, all these different creative impulses. I used to do pretty well with creative writing at school, at home, uh, where, you know, and, and at home where I 
learn to type using the two-finger method, as so many of us do. Mm-hmm. I never really did much in the way of art, not a great deal apart from constant doodling, but I had a really good eye for colours. I enjoyed creative woodwork and military model building with my friends growing up, and that later morphed into sci-fi model work, including airbrushing and more advanced weathering techniques, that sort of thing. Um, I had a particularly strong love of sci-fi literature, such as uh, Larry Niven and uh, Ray Bradbury, Isaac Asimov, Philip K. Dick, Arthur C. Clarke, Douglas Adams, and I had, or I have as well, a love for TV and movies with an emphasis on sci-fi, anything that sparked my imagination. Mm-hmm. You know, I love watching Lost in Space. Um, when I was a kid, I, I wasn't that interested in Star Trek, believe it or not. It was, uh, I was not in the right demographic for that. I think that was more aimed at college age. I'm a big fan of um, the old 60s Star Trek uh, series now. But at the time, I didn't get enough out of it, I think, because I didn't understand it. So you love Time Tunnel, Land of the Giants, Forge to the Bottom of the Sea, Doctor Who, Black Seven, Babylon 5, The X-Files, Planet of the Apes. Later on, um, The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits, because I don't know if they were rerunning it at all, because I don't remember watching it, seeing it ever until the mid-'80s. And I think they probably hadn't had it on TV for a long time. I think a lot of people were very ignorant of those two shows, but I just loved them, and I've I bought the box sets now. Yeah. A lot of movies that sparked my imagination, like Blade Runner 2001, the Alien movies, Day the Earth Stood Still, Forbidden Planet, classic 50s sci-fi, War of the Worlds, The Thing from Another World, When Worlds Collide, Man Who Fell to Earth, just to name a few, there's, there's an awful lot. So in summation, though, I think I was a bit of a late bloomer, artistically speaking. I had so many interests that my artistic sort of talents went in various directions that weren't necessarily traditional so you know i took up the guitar when i was 19 and i'm self-taught and uh, i can play pretty well actually i should uh, record something and put it on my facebook page sometime do a bill mooney <laughs> yes you should do that you should uh, record green sleeves i just got to hear bill mooney do a whole hour i don't think it's a coincidence that he said that that was the first song he learned to play because i think it's a, uh, often the first song that a lot of people learn to play that's the first song i learned to play is that right? That's cool. Yeah, I think it's more than a coincidence. I think when people were learning, you know, and they got friends with a music book for beginners, I think that's usually one of the first songs, probably. Well, I admire anyone that has artistic talent such as you have, but how did you wind up choosing to study cartography? Cartography, basically, for those who don't know, is the science of, or practice of drawing maps. And in general terms, geographic data is analyzed and compiled and mixed into a publishable map. So overall, it's a mixture of art, science, and technology. I like the art side of things, particularly. When I was a 12-year-old primary school student at, um, at, uh, in year seven, I think, a teacher introduced the subject of mapping, and I was topping the class. I uh, received A-plus merits for every single one except for one map, which only got an A-plus. But mm. um, really surprised at that. But um, then later in high school, I wasn't sure what to do as there were so many directions, I believe, I could have gone in. But I was blessed with being kind of strong with in both left and right brain. So that is both the logical and creative side. So my dad suggested cartography and I just sort of um, investigated that and sort of fell into it from there. And later in the 80s, that discipline changed radically with the advent of computer-assisted mapping. And I went back to further study in that field, getting a a Bachelor of Science at university. They asked me to do honours, but I declined because I was married at the time and I I wanted to get back into the workforce. And so that's how I ended up choosing cartography. That's great. Do you have any formal training in graphic design? No, actually none whatsoever. (laughs) That may surprise a lot of people. It does, yeah. Anyway, um, although at university I'd 
I had to do a multimedia design unit as part of my cartography degree, and that was a very creative uh, unit to be doing. It was my favourite subject by far. I created a multimedia kiosk program based on the British 60s TV show The Prisoner. Mm, great show. And um, Yeah, I don't know if uh, people know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about kiosk programs, but if, if you walk into, a, say, a, a pharmacist, they will have a little TV screen there, and you press a button, and it'll... Um, because you're trying to get an idea of what you think may be wrong with you, what you think you might need to get from the chemist. And there can be videos and little diagrams and things like that, and that's what it is, basically. Anyway, I did this uh, thing on the prisoner, and, and uh, I think I bamboozled the lecturer a little because I'm sure she'd never heard of it before. <laughs> In hindsight, I, I never would have chose the prisoner. I, I would have chose something a bit more conventional, but, um, but I got a good mark. But I couldn't spend too much time on it, even though I loved the unit because I had to put more effort into the more difficult and drier subjects. Yeah, yeah so um, not your conventional sort of person with regard to a formal training in painting or graphic design. So how did your background in cartography prepare you, if at all, for getting into doing colorizations? What, in what aspect was that helpful? Well, one day, about eight years ago, uh, my then boss passed me a new Corel Paint Shop Pro software disk, actually. Um, he asked me if I had any use for it, and I, I said, yeah. I, when I had time to explore it, doing a few tutorials, I found it to be quite interesting, and some of its features, like the colorizing tool, went something I would need at work, but it would become useful later on in a hobby sense. I see. So it was access to that program that sort of opened the door, huh? Yeah, I just thought, oh, I can do this. Um, and um, I decided to uh, start experimenting with the colorizations in three years later, about 2013, and um, that was... That was around the time I discovered Facebook and Facebook-based uh, Lost in Space fandom and all that stuff. So was the idea that you had right from the start to do some colorizations of Lost in Space images, or was it just general colorization experiments? No, I started just using Lost in Space as a base to see how I could go. Since then, I've done some other stuff. I've done some personal uh, or black-and-white photos, family photos, that sort of thing, and various other bits and pieces, uh, publicity stills from movies like The Thing from Another World uh, and uh, a few TV shows like uh, Twilight Zone and Outer Limits. I've done a little bit of that. But by and large, I've spent my time doing Lost in Space. Without getting too technical, can you describe for our listeners the process and the techniques that you use to create a colorization? Because it's, it's really stunning to see these, but I actually don't have any idea what the process is like. Firstly, uh, over the past six years, I've compiled a library of approximately... Well, I didn't know this. I had to check, but I've got about 4,000 Blu-ray screen-captured images from various sources from the show. And I also have an additional collection of publicity stills and behind-the-scenes pics. I'm always adding to this collection, and um, my choices are based on a combination of personal preference and the estimated amount of time to complete the work. And, and really, I need to also to consider resolution, the image resolution. Oh, yes. Um, I didn't the, think Im about that. Yeah. yeah, that's the number of pixels in each image. All of the Blu-ray images are a sufficient resolution to produce a reasonably satisfactory result for my purposes. I mean, for Facebook purposes, really, because the um, resolution on Facebook isn't particularly great. So the Blu-rays, are they're all about 72 pixels per inch, roughly about 225 kilobytes in size, as opposed to the old unremastered standard definition images, which I used to do, which were 72 pixels per inch, but only one-sixth the size. So when you enlarge those ones, they look pretty dire. Mm. So, uh, you know, to produce a colorized image, it can take anything from 15 minutes to five hours, depending on the number of elements in each shot. But having said that, I could spend even longer if I wanted. 
you know, if you've got a very simple image, it won't take very long. If it's got more complex elements, then it'll take longer. But it's fair to say that the more time you put into colorizing an image, the better the result. So it just depends how much time you've got, really. So an average job might take about two hours. And so way back in 2013, I was producing about oh, roughly three images per day three colorized images from using the old standard definition stills and they were a lot quicker to do and I didn't use as many processes back then. By 2016 I was doing about one per day using the Blu-ray stills due to the greater detail in the pictures. I see. What sort of software tool or maybe I should ask what software tools do you use? These days um, principally I'm using um, Kodigy which is uh, Ukrainian colorizing software and that, I use that for the initial colorizing. I'd just like to mention a couple of things first about that Kodigy software. Firstly, it uses quite different processes than more conventional types of software like Adobe Photoshop and Corel. The latter involve creating masks over areas of similar color, whereas Kodigy involves placing colored lines close to the boundaries of objects, such as a, a silhouette of a person. Later, the software interpolates the boundaries and automatically, I'm presuming this, but it looks like it's doing this, it automatically feathers the colors along those boundaries. I hope I'm not getting too technical here, but feathering is kind of like um, just creating a fade mm. along the boundaries. So it's very novice friendly and, and the support staff are A1. And secondly, as of the online release of this podcast interview, um, Vera Svareva uh, from Kodigy is offering 50% off all their software for pre-planus polycolor collective members. So that will be very cheap. So secondly, I use Corel Paint Shop Pro. I use that for post-processing these days. So I post-process the final Kodigy colorized image, and that involves adding light effects to reflective objects, subtle light effects, and to uh, enhance existing lighting, adding filter effects afterwards, such as skin tones, warm earth tones, vibrant foliage effects or night effects, if it's nighttime. Because uh, what will happen is I'll do, it, do the image in Kodigy, and then I'll look at it and think that the colors are too vibrant, it's nighttime. And at nighttime, the colors are always toned down. So I'll apply a night effect filter in Corel. So there's also a feathering, softening, skin smoothing, digital noise removal, increasing sharpness and decreasing color saturation and vibrancy and adding drop shadows to the text. I always put my name on there or the name of an episode or something like that and I, I add a drop shadow so that, or a shadow behind the text so that'll make it stand out a lot more. So when you're colorizing a black and white image from the first season, how can you be sure about the color palette to use? Well, I've got a library of colors that I've built up over time, um, and they were created by sampling pixels, which are little square dots of color, uh, of existing color images of the sets, props, actors, wardrobes, for example, the different first season tunics that we used. I've got uh, uh, folders full of um, that information, so I... Basically, I'll go through and I'll, I'll find a tunic and I'll sample a pixel and I'll notice there's variations, there's slight variations in the color saturation uh, because of the lighting or whatever. And I'll, I'll look for the most uh, common pixel shade or color or intensity. When they got to, in the first season of Lost in Space, when they got to the episode Ghost in Space, the wardrobe changed and Smith's wardrobe changed about three times. So I, basically, I need to remember that going through. These are things I've learned with time. The Kodigy software I use allows me to sample the color gradients of an actor's face using an existing color photo. So you've got the tiny variations of nuances in skin tones over, say, Guy Williams' face. If you use the color gradient tool, then it will look a lot more realistic. Ever since I started using that, I've been getting comments. Before, um, I get comments from a friend of mine who would say they look a bit pasty. 
because uh, I'd use the same flesh tone over the whole face, and you never get that if, if you you know look at somebody's face. There's a lot of variations. Mm. So that is um, one technique that I use. Given that you've been doing this for a while, any idea how many colorizations you've produced to date? Well, I knew you were going to ask this question, and I thought I'd better check because I haven't got a clue. <laughs> so I, I, I did a quick check on the computer, and it's about 1,200 images. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Quite surprising. Yeah. I thought that can't be right, but I checked again, and I thought, yeah, well, give or take 50 or so. It's about it. That's amazing, Guy. When we talked about this earlier, you told me that your goal has been to produce colorized images that hold up against visuals that were originally shot in color. Do you think you've achieved that standard, or is there still more to be done? Uh, well, I don't think it's possible to get it perfectly right due to a variety of factors, such as the different lighting that I mentioned before, which is used in black and white filming, or the extra thick makeup that the actors had to wear for that first season because it was being filmed in black and white. And to my knowledge, there are no existing color shots of the wardrobes of some of these guest stars, such as Torrin Thatcher's space trader character tunic that he wore. Um, that information may well be available in the bowels of 20th Century Fox or the memories of the remaining actors, but my opinion that if I tried to match the visuals exactly as they appeared on the soundstage, it would look pretty good, but it wouldn't look quite right, mm. which is why I'd like to use a variety of subtle filters in the final stages of post-processing to give my images added depth and realism in an attempt to recreate the special mood of the first season. So consequently, I think my more recent work looks a lot better visually than my earlier efforts. I'm trying to get an effect that looks better than if you'd just been standing there looking at the set while they were filming. I'm trying to get an effect that's actually better than that. I'm trying to get around that the problem of uh, them having filmed in black and white originally. Yeah. There's actually, if you look at films or movie or TV that are shot in color, there's variations over time with that, basically due to the film stock, the type of camera that's being used. Uh, there was the old Technicolor process. The Germans had the Agva film and then the Kodak. Those all have a different take on what filmed in color actually means. So when you're doing yeah. a colorization, you're getting just another interpretation of that. And I like the way you put that. You know, you're trying to show something that's better than it would have been otherwise, which I think is yeah. a neat take. It's also my own interpretation. And for anyone that does any colorizing, any companies that do that sort of thing, it's kind of like their interpretation. But they're trying to get as close as possible to what it actually looked like. Well, let me ask you this question then. Since you've done 1,200 <laughs> images, that's amazing. Do you have a personal favorite among your colorizations, or, or is it a bit like picking your favorite child? Hard to do. Well, I don't know if I have a particular favorite. Um, I've got a bunch of favorites, but if I suppose if I had to pick one, um, the scene of John and Maureen embracing on the Jupiter 2 flight deck prior to the freezing tube takeoff sequence in the episode, The Reluctant Stowaway would be right up there. That that was done last year, I think. If I was to do that again, actually, I would do it a little differently um, because I, I like the more subdued colours of the first season, Jupiter 2. Um, the actual colours are a bit more subdued. They became a lot brighter in the second and third season. And the lighting was kind of a brownie type of colour, an earthy type of colour in the first season, whereas in the second and third season it was a lot more sort of white fluorescent. Well, that brings up a good point. You said you'd do it a little differently now. Do you ever go back and try to improve some of your earlier works, or once they're done, they're done? Um, well, no, these days I, I have been doing a bit of that because, well, one, it's a lot quicker than actually colorizing an image. I don't have as much time. And sometimes I think, oh, no, I could really fix that up and make it look quite different or make it look a bit better. So, yes, I've been doing some of that lately. 
calling it remastered polycolor partly because I'm something of a perfectionist and but some of my earlier efforts going back to 2013 I cringe at some of those earlier efforts you know but everyone has to start somewhere absolutely I hope you're enjoying this great interview with Lost in Space colorization artist Guy Foster as much as I am. His passion for his artwork is matched by his love for the show. He's got more to share about his Lost in Space artwork, the Lost in Space fan scene down under, and much, much more. So sit tight for part two of our interview with Lost in Space artist Guy Foster. What led you to establish your Facebook group, the Preplanus Polycolor Collective? Uh, well, firstly, there are quite a few Lost in Space-related Facebook groups out there, and I think the last time I counted, which is fairly recently, it was uh, 46, 46 groups. That's not including the 23 Lost in Space Facebook pages. I thought it would be good to have a Facebook group just as a repository for viewing um, my collected colorized material so that it would be all in one place because I had it all over the place. And people have asked me, why did I give the Preplanus Polycolor Collective, uh, or PPC for short, such an unusual name? And I, I suppose partly because I was keen to avoid the traditional group labels. And, um, you know, there are a lot of groups and societies out there. And let's face it, you aren't likely to forget the Preplanus Polycolor Collective in a hurry. No, that's true. But, um, yeah. And I often get asked what on earth the polycolor bit means. It's a reference to the Time Merchant story, oh. and where the Time Merchant refers to viewing events from Smith's return to Alpha Control at the moment of launch in glorious polycolor. Oh. So the term, yeah, so the, the term glorious polycolor was itself a pun intended to poke fun at one of the three big TV networks at the time who were all switching from black and white broadcast to color between 64 and 67, and all had their own special branding of the quality of their color, and at the beginning of each color show's NBC would proudly announce while showing an animation of their famous peacock. The following program is brought to you in whatever living color on NBC. So, hence the birth of glorious polycolor. Ah, uh, now that is a great story. I'm glad you mentioned that. Since I started the group, um, it's kind of branched out into lost space artwork of mine and many others, as well as some humorous memes that I've been doing lately. So it's quite different from a lot of other groups. But it has branched out a bit. It's not just about colorizing. I'm a big poacher of your colorized images to promote some of the episodes. But I love your memes as well. Those are great. And then I also <laughs> love some of your other, I don't know exactly what you'd call them, but you've done some like takeoffs of famous artworks. You got a pretty good little shout out the other day on one of those. Oh, yes. That was the one with Jonathan Harris, uh, where I'd put uh, his Dr. Smith character in um, Edvard Munch's uh, The Scream painting. I just put him over the uh, the character that he had that was screaming, and uh, I I used the similar colours and similar art style digitally done. I just thought it fitted pretty well because a lot of people remember him for his famous screaming. Of course. <laughs> yeah, and I think oh that's right, Bill Mermy saw it in one of the groups somewhere, maybe his group, and uh, he must have seen it for the first time and liked it and posted it in his page, and then and I, I wasn't a friend of his at the time. I'd. Um, and and I, I just noticed it was in his page, and there were about 300 responses. That's awesome. And there's a lot of very favorable comments. So I, I just responded to each and every one, and then I get a friend request from Bill just a few days ago. Beautiful. That's great. Yeah, which was nice. That's yeah, so, nice. Uh, yeah, he's, he does keep in touch with his fans as much as he can, but he's obviously quite a busy man. Indeed he is. So yeah. you started off with this Facebook group posting your stuff, but I noticed that you've got some guest artists on there. Is that something that's a recent development? 
No, that, I mean, it, it happened almost immediately. I was never restrictive about that. So uh, to avoid confusion, I've tried to put other artists' work in separate photo albums and, you know, Lost the Space fans don't want to just see my stuff. And I'm always telling people, Polycolor is bigger than any one man. Mm. Well, there are others out there now who are doing great work too. There are quite a few people out there and I enjoy seeing them all. But one little bone I have to pick is because sometimes when I'm looking around for images, instead of going directly to Facebook, I'll just do a Google image search or a Bing image search or something like that. And I'll see a colorized image and if there's no attribution to it and I try to check it out, but sometimes I can't. And it's a, it's a nice habit that you have of always having your little watermark with your name on it. And I, I don't know if everybody's doing that now, but I have found a lot of images where that's not on there. So that's a highly encouraged pro tip because I hate it when I've put something on there and then somebody comes back and tells me, hey, that was my image. I said, oops, I didn't Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, yeah, I, I've got some friends who do colorizing too and they... Um and some of them put their names on, some of them do some of the time and not all of the time. But I think it's a good idea. And But even still, that, that one that popped up on Bill Mimi's group of mine, somehow, maybe it was a copy of a copy of a copy, but uh, my name could, couldn't really be read. People were saying, who, who did this, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, that's partly why I was responding. Well, so what are some of the guys that you, you might care to mention that post on your Facebook group? Okay, firstly, uh, Pelham Court. He's a British lots of the space fan. He specialised in colourising some of his country's black and white shows, such as Jerry Anderson's Marionette series, Fireball XL5 and the Time Slip series. He uses Photoshop, by the way. Bob Agan, he's an enthusiastic relative newcomer to colourising. Jody Renner and Dave Davis uh, mainly do colourising of other material in the Codigy group, but I've seen um, some lots of space work from them. Alan Creaser, he's a good friend of mine who I see quite regularly. He specialises in colourising early Doctor Who, but he's done quite a bit of Lost in Space, and um, he uses Photoshop. And recently I caught up with him and he showed me a pile of large, glossy photographic prints of his colourised work, which included Lost in Space. I thought they looked really good. They looked mm. a whole lot better than actually on the computer screen, but they look cool, and uh, I want to try that sometime. Uh, also, um, uh, Jonathan Anderson, he used to colourise. He stopped colourising, as far as I know, about four years ago, but he continues to produce... Um, humorous lost space animation stills and he had a particular colorized style that he did yeah there's a few people there that i know and i talk to is there much of a collaboration between it, you guys do you share secret tips or uh, techniques with each other or is it all sort of uh yeah uh, yeah if i've got questions um you know if they've got questions of me uh, some of them are facebook friends and we do share tips from time to time and it's sometimes simply constructive criticism, something which I'm very open to personally. So I like to be supportive towards them. They're doing what they love. Well, there's some other Lost in Space artists and artisans out there who are doing show-themed art other than colorizations. Do you have any other people that you'd like to mention? Yeah, but before I mention that, uh, I do quite a bit of that myself nowadays. I've done a whole bunch of weird and wonderful things, like uh, the Dr. Smith uh, the Scream picture, the Octopus Diner, which mm. I added uh, a B9 Robot, and that was by Elise Frappier. B9 Robot taking a stroll over a Japanese footbridge, which um, Monet had done it, but I added the robot mm -hmm. after the bridge. That's very uh, clever. B9 and Don <laughs> Robertson at Nighthawk's Diner. Is that yep. called Nighthawk's Diner? I think that's right. Yeah, I know the one you're talking about. It's a, it's yeah, a yeah, classic. Yeah, by uh, Edward Hopper. Yes. By Edward Hopper. It's a famous American one. And so I added uh, John and the robot, and uh, I did a, a like a 50s movie poster Earth versus the Jupiter 2s which was a spin on the movie poster for the film Earth versus the Flying Saucers mm. so I did the Voyage of the Tauron Crab Robot it was a landscape style painting quite like that one 
and uh, man's colonization of space, featuring a million Jupiter twos flying through space at various sizes. Yeah. And Bill Mooney <laughs> liked that one. <laughs> Colorized original black and white lost in space storyboards. I've done a variety of those black and white storyboards and colorized, and that was fun doing those because nobody's seen anything like that. So I'm getting to uh, my favorite lost in space artists, and not necessarily in this order. I've got about a dozen here. Ron Gross. I really admire a lot of the uh, posters and calendars that he's done That's and that he's great. still doing. And he does a good job there. Juan Ortiz, he does retro-style individual episode posters, and he's just released a book um, some months back of this material. And Eric Joyner, he does um, robots and donuts art. I had to describe it's kind of retro art. There's always a donut in the picture <laughs> in some form and a robot. <laughs> And that's usually either Lost in Space robot or, or Robbie the robot. Uh, Helen Hill, she's got incomparable uh, Jupiter 2 art. Jamie Chase, he's done a little bit of sketch style art, but it's just brilliant. Uh, Thorn Hart, a personal friend of mine, he, he uh, has done icon style Lost in Space art. It's fantastic. Catherine Bujold Solarium, she's done some Lost in Space posters, very professional looking. Mm-hmm. Um, and she specializes in uh, Space 1999 Moonbase Alpha posters. Um, she's Incredible. She's, her entire house is um, furnished like Moonbase Alpha. All the furniture and everything. It's incredible. Wow. Andre Q. I think he's French. He's done uh, one called Danger. Will Robinson, Danger, Danger. <laughs> Brian Boskind has done a little bit. John Peter Britton. He does a lot of comic style art. Uh, Jonathan Anderson, uh, comic style vector art these days. SB Waite. I did a collaboration effort with him where he'd done... Uh, John Robinson and, and the robot fighting off some menace in uh, on the, the upper deck of the Jupiter 2, and I spent some time colorizing that. And, uh, yeah, he loved it, and I posted it all over the place. See, Scott O'Brien, he's, he did artwork for the recent cartoon pilot. Timothy Artis, <laughs> he did a robot silhouette pic, which I quite liked, featuring the B9. Mm. And they're artists, and then there's what I call builders, lost space builders, like Bill Hedges with his full-scale studio sets and props. Yeah, it's phenomenal. Yep, phenomenal. I'd love to visit that. Uh, John Antonellis with his full-scale working chariot, and Mark Myers with his amazing model work. He's a very gifted modeler. Yeah, I can really appreciate the effort that he's done, gone into because I used to do a lot of modeling myself, and the amount of time and effort and detail involved is fantastic. Well, it's cool that both of those guys you mentioned, Bill Hedges and Mark Myers, they're also very prolific Facebook posters, so you get to see a lot of their stuff, which is always nice to, that they share. Yeah, yeah. There's another one who's just appeared recently. He's a friend of mine, Frank Terrible. He, and, and hopefully this really works out, he's doing 3D printer work. He's done a lot of props and stuff from Lost in Space recently, just over the last uh, month or two that he's been operating, and um, from a lot of other movies and TV shows, various things he's been doing. I think he did the Bat Communicator from the 60s, Batman. He's done a whole lot of stuff looks wonderful and he's selling that uh, stuff to people and hope it goes well me too i got invited to join his uh, group and i think it's great the stuff he's doing so that's very very promising i'm personally fascinated by that technology oh yeah one thing i wanted to mention since we've got you on the line when i look at our podcast metrics for downloads and subscriptions web traffic etc we have listeners from a lot of countries i think the last time i looked it was like over 30 countries as you'd imagine our listenership is heaviest in the anglosphere with the states being the number one download but uh, coming in at a strong second is australia what is it do you think that draws so many australians to be fans of uh, lost in space well 
I can't comment too much on Lost in Space fandom in Australia since I was never directly involved with the Australian club Lost in Space Australia or Lisa. Um, you know, um, as I mentioned before, um, for approximately 20 years, from the late 60s to late 80s, Lost in Space had continuous reruns here. And as a result, I guess part of the reason may be a major reason. As a result, a generation of Aussies were immersed in the exploits of Smith and the Robinsons and also, the, you know, for, those who are interested, the results of a survey of Lisa members both here and overseas concluded that their club newsletter was held in very high regard by its readership as probably the most innovative and informative club fanzine that Lost in Space ever published anywhere. Mm. Awful. I guess another reason is there are an awful lot of iconic phrases from the show that have made it into our language. Only a couple of days ago I was having a friendly chat with someone who used the expression, it does not compute. (laughs) This person isn't isn't a, a, a Lost in Space fan. It was just stuck in her brain, you know? Oh, and she great. just used that expression. <laughs> that's great. I think she must have heard that on Lost in Space because you don't hear it anywhere else. That's beautiful. So did the new Netflix Lost in Space reboot make any kind of impact on Australia? Was it popular there? Well, I watched it a couple of months back. When it premiered on Netflix in April, the show was promoted heavily on our free-to-air TV stations of various billboards uh, all over the place. Our most prestigious newspaper, The Australian, described the show as must-see sci-fi, although it did question its family friendliness for the younger viewers. Mm-hmm. And um, I can understand that. I think there was a couple of scenes of um, operations or something like that. Um, but uh, that's a minor thing. Um, the entertainment section of the Australian Gizmodo website said that it seems like they've found something special. Our Australian ABC News government news channel said the new series is unlikely to develop either the fan base of, say, the Game of Thrones or indeed the cult following of its campy predecessor. Um, that is a pity because it deserves success. So, I mean, but that, that's, um, that's after the first season. I mean, it's got a long way to go. So from my own perspective, I've been enjoying it. I, I enjoyed it uh, tremendously, and so has my wife. Um, but we see it as quite a different series from the original. Um, meanwhile, on social media, a couple of uh, Lost in Space reboot groups and a page devoted to the new show have sprung up. And um, there's definitely Aussie input in there. In fact, um, the Lost in Space 2.0 group um, is run by a Kiwi, a New Zealander. Oh. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> no. It's actually a... an excellent and well-run group. Yeah, and I agree with you. I do like the the new show quite a bit, but it is something different from the classic series. But yeah, my hope is that there's a newer generation that's being exposed to the classic series, and I think there's some evidence that that's true. Well, if you'd asked me prior to the Netflix reboot, I might well have said generally not so much. But um, if I can quote the show's viewing stats, um, the rating of the new Lost in Space series, it's been a huge hit with a 50 to 64-year-old demographic. 29% came from that group, but 28% came from the 35 to 49s, followed by 20% from the 18 to 34s. I guess it probably means that a lot of parents who grew up when the original Lost in Space was on air or in syndication appear to have passed on their love of the program to their kids. That's a good thing. That's great. So, Guy, here's a question that I've saved for the end. Recently, I'm sure you saw Kevin Burns, whose company, Synthesis Entertainment, owns the rights to the Irwin Allen TV properties, posted online a one-minute test clip for a projected colorization of the unaired pilot, No Place to Hide. So it sounds like you saw it. What did you think, and how would you feel about colorization for Lost in Space? Okay, well, actually, I did see that. And, um, well, firstly, I saw five stills from that, but there wasn't enough information to, it was from Kevin Burns, but it, it didn't say whether it was colorized or whether they're original color. And I thought, well, who knows? He's got access to a lot of material that 
people may not have seen. It could be original colour, some of it. I had to have a really good look and there was a bit of debate in my group about whether it was original or, or colourised. And I, yeah, it took a bit of scrutiny, but after a while I realised that they were colourised. But it's a tribute to, um, to the, um, the group that did it, West Wing. I think West Wing Studios, they did such a good job that it took me a while to work out that, that it was colorized. And then I, then I saw the footage and um, yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great. But I'll get back to that uh, in a minute. Firstly, I just wanted to talk about first season being colorized or the idea of it. I'm very conscious that there are fans, including friends of mine out there, who are passionate about leaving black and white alone. And the subject has certainly provoked its fair share of debate and controversy. Certainly black and white and color film are two different mediums. Uh, if you're working in color, and you need to pay attention to the colours in the scene and how to use them effectively. But in black and white, you need to pay more attention to textures, contrast, shapes, that type of thing. I recently read a rather extreme article in the online New York Times arguing that the colourising techniques um, degrade works of art, which they liken to putting lipstick on a Greek statue. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> which was... I thought it was an unhelpful analogy. It wasn't about loss of space, it was just colorizing in general. But I thought it was an unhelpful type of comment. But from my perspective, we're not talking about defacing statues here. I personally think it would be cool to colorize loss of space to freshen the show and give it a more contemporary look for a new generation of viewers, provided that the original black and white was still available. So color simply provides an alternative. So the black and white wouldn't be going away. Oh, this is, uh, this is the first statement that Kevin Burns made uh, not so long ago. And it says, uh, colorizing the first season of Lost in Space would bring a whole new audience to the show. Many young people won't watch black and white content and some TV stations and cable networks have only shown the colour episodes. CBS has had rating success with colourising selective I Love Lucy episodes. The quality of colourisation I've seen recently is excellent, but the cost per minute is still very high. We've got 30 first season episodes, including the pilot to colourise, and that's equivalent to 15 feature films, which is a tall order. Uh, we're keeping an eye on the technology and would certainly take advantage of any opportunities. A few years ago, we were in the process of putting together a classic Lost in Space movie comprised of the first five episodes cut down to a 90-minute feature. This would have been shown as bonus value for the outlets that carry the series. We ultimately didn't do it, but the thought occurs that if we did, that could be a candidate for colorization. And then you've got the recent comment that Kevin Burns said, uh, I'll take a few minutes to repeat some of the comments I made on the Alpha Control podcast and to address those who would still be opposed to such a project. Please look at this situation not only from the viewpoint of what you might personally prefer, but also what would be best for the health of the property. I'm sure all of us hope that Lost in Space will continue to capture the attention and admiration of future generations of fans. Colorization project would do much, in my opinion, to ensure that this indeed happens. Yes, there's a lot of good sense behind doing this project if it can be done. Yeah. And it, from what I've seen of the test, and I'm not the expert, but it looks very promising. I was, I thought it was very good. Yeah. That also, um, everyone has a different mindset when they're talking about something, and and when they're talking about uh, colorizing, and they they're against it. They may be thinking of some of the efforts back in the 80s and 90s, which were pretty dire. But they're a lot better these days. And a good example, a perfect example, best example I can think of, is uh, something that's about to be released. It's uh, the new Peter Jackson documentary called They Shall Not Grow Old about World War One. He made a few points in an interview that I watched recently, and I thought people might like to hear that. Firstly, the more time you put into colorization, the better the result will be, which I think I said before. Uh, he used reference photos too. For uniforms, he drove out into the French landscape and took uh, photos of grass and trees and mud and all the natural landscape and that, because that's going to look different from the landscape in New Zealand, where he's from. So, uh, And he mentioned also restoring footage has a lot of technical limitations, such as age, shrinkage, 
duplication, scratches, dirt. Uh, World War One footage was shot at approximately 16 frames per second, and which gave it a kind of Charlie Chaplin-esque feel. And these days, you, I think at 24 frames per second are used. Peter Jackson's Weta workshop used their supercomputers to interpolate movements between the frames to give objects more natural motion. So instead of 16, he's probably given them 30 or something like the one in between each frame. So it's what 32. So he was able to give it that natural motion. But anyway, and that that's um that's quite phenomenal that technology. Oh, it is. I'm very much looking forward to that. So yeah, he's apparently he's remastered um a hundred hours of footage from the British War Museum because that's the easy part. It's the colorizing that's the hard part because they've automated the remastering. But the colorizing that's a much more sort of semi-automated process. It takes a lot more time. Because basically there's still some artistry involved with that. It's not just a computer program. Is that what you're getting at? Well, yeah, you need a human brain to do that that type of thing. Uh, you know, so it's semi-automated. A lot of people say it'll, it could be fully automated one day, but, well, that might be a long way off. You'd have mm. to have some pretty advanced artificial intelligence. And there is um, a website out there that does actually colorize photos. You can put them in and they'll come out with an interpretation and um, learning software that will actually learn from the photos that you put in. So anyway, this is quite interesting software. Um, I've tried some and they've come out looking awful. And I tried one uh, family photo from back in the 60s. It was amazing. I thought I didn't suggest anything and the colors came out were all correct. <laughs> the color of my father's Land Rover um, was exactly the right color. Wow. And I thought, how did it know that? Yeah, <laughs> that's bizarre. Yeah. Well, like so much of it, it seems to be changing rapidly and improving. And based on what I'm seeing right now, it looks like the future is promising for more of this stuff. So mm. thanks for sharing that. Let me ask you this as we close out, Guy. What's next on your horizon? What are you thinking about? Uh... Well, I still haven't run out of creative ideas for depicting classic lost in space in different ways. And I still want to continue with colorizing as time permits. I've been recently looking at tutorials for generating vector graphic versions of raster images. So that means stills from lost in space. Um, the difference between vector and raster graphics is that raster graphics are composed of pixels and vector graphics are composed of paths. A raster graphics is like a GIF or a JPEG. So it's an array of pixels of various colors, which together form an image, whereas vector data uses X and Y coordinates to define the locations of points, lines, and areas. Recently, I tried using a Corel PaintShop Pro and also using Corel Draw, and the latter being primarily for creating computer-assisted drawings and the former being for image work. The colors look great, and it works technically, but I have a bit of a learning curve ahead of me. So at present, I'm still trying to find an effective semi-automated technique I can use with my Corel software. Um, but if I can't find a decent one, I may well have to invent one. So in a nutshell, I don't know exactly exactly where I'm going to go, creatively speaking. Um, that's a good thing, I suppose. You'll always be surprised because I don't know where I'm going to go. Well, we will be tuning in to see what's next. And I appreciate the fact that you share so many of your images with us. Anything else you'd like to uh, share with us before we uh, close out? Uh, well, one of my friends called me a posting beast. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you're posting in 22 groups? <laughs> but yeah, well, why not? Why not? Yeah. Facebook can be funny sometimes. I go away for for a week and when I come back because I haven't used Facebook for a week, suddenly they think um because I'm posting in 22 groups the same thing that's being posted, they think it's spam. So I have to go through this convoluted process with 
Facebook and uh, to get them to, perhaps it's an automated system, to become aware that it's not spam. Yes, that's happened to me before, too, when I first started doing this. And I was a novice, so I had no idea I was even treading near whatever algorithm they have to detect that. But uh, it's one of those little things you have to accommodate, I suppose. So I just wanted to also say congratulations on your podcast, and I hope things go from strength to strength. I'm sure they will. Well, thank you very much for that, and it's been a real pleasure talking with you today, Guy, and getting to hear about how you do all the stuff that you do. It's great to watch, and we got a little peek behind the curtain there, so I really appreciate you being generous with your time and joining us on Alpha Control. This is going to be a real treat for our listeners. We will, of course, link to your fascinating Facebook group, the Pre-Planus Polycolor Collective, and any other links that you'd like to send us up. Uh, We will certainly put those on the show notes page for the podcast as well. So thank you again, and let's see if I can say this correctly. Uh, Good day. (laughs) It's really great talking to you, and thank you so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. All right. We'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. That was Arepa talking to Lost in Space colorization artist Guy Foster. You can tell he's truly passionate about Lost in Space, and it was fascinating to learn how he produces his beautiful images. Be sure to check out the Pre-Planus Polycolor Collective on Facebook. In the meantime, we will be back next week with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you then. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.